Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. I didn't enjoy the election. Uh, I had um, you know, a reflection on this during the summer. As I say, I've got my mojo back. Mojo. The libido, the life force, the essence, the right stuff. What the French call a certain... I don't know what. <laughs> it's Wednesday, <laughs> September the 14th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. We're all in great form here today. I'm Hugh Linehan. You just heard the Taoiseach there in fine fettle at this week's Fine Gael Pinkin. Reporting in yesterday's Irish Times, Miriam Lord described a backbencher turning to a colleague and whispering, what's a mojo? To discuss this and other matters, I'm joined by John Paul Phelan, Fine Gael TD for Carlo Kilkenny and Chair of the New Committee on Budget Scrutiny. Also here, Sarah Barden and Fia Kelly, both of whom you heard giggling in the background there from our political staff. You're all very welcome. John Paul, what is a mojo? <laughs> Not a notion what a mojo is. It was a topic of conversation um, uh, at the uh, at the thinking, I think it's fair to say. I, I read Miriam Lord's piece yesterday and in fairness it was vintage Miriam Lord. Um I have not. I have no idea what a mojo is. It was everybody. It's one of those things that everybody kind of thinks they know, and they take their own meaning from it. So. Well, we, we we heard Doctor Evil's description of, of of what it is there, and and you know anybody with any cultural sensibility whatsoever will know that I think it's in the third Austin Powers movie. Uh, Austin's uh, mojo is stolen by 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 Doctor Evil. So the question is, who is the Doctor Evil in this story who stole and, and and his mojo in the first yeah, place? I, I I couldn't possibly comment on who the Doctor Evil. I think you're my the two fellow panelists here. Probably have a uh, better notion than I do of who Dr. Evil is in this context. <laughs> uh, Sarah, I, I was going to say to be serious, but actually I'm not going to be serious at all quite, um, um, quite yet about this. And uh, Kenny has a, has a, a, you know, he's a long history of facepalm moments. This is, you know, this is, this is only the latest one. In fact, I think he, he obviously, to my mind, he has a particular fondness for stoner 90s comedies because he was doing his Bill and Ted impression back in Croke Park in July and now he's doing his Austin Powers, his Austin Powers stuff. Wayne's World cannot, cannot be far behind. Does he, does he come up with these ideas in the back of his car and the way to these things or does somebody suggest them to him or what the hell's going on? Uh, I have no idea, to be frank. I, I stopped trying to analyse Enda Kenny's mind quite some time ago because I don't think many people know just what is going on uh, in there. Um, uh, there, was a, there was one during the general election campaign where we were in uh, RTE uh, for the leaders' debate. It was... Baltic cold outside and Ender walked in with his jacket uh, over his shoulder and someone someone shouted Taoiseach do you not feel the cold he said I feel no cold <laughs> and he strode in uh, and the rest of us were Baltic we had gloves scarves hats on and, uh, <laughs> and the Taoiseach felt nothing it, it, it's just one of the it, it, there, there are a lot of moments where you just think oh jeepers what on earth is going through his head when he does things like that and the mojo one is one of them because I'd say it is from his own you know I mean I think it's his own era maybe to an extent I mean he does make those kind of awkward 
it's like uncle your type yeah. uh, moments, yeah. um, and I just think that that's probably what mm. what it is. I've heard a couple of people, Fiak, and about the political chattering classes and politicians say, really, there's no there's no point in trying to figure out what's inside and to Kenny's head, but. An awful lot of the news agenda at the moment kind of focuses on what's inside Enda Kenny's head. His statements over the last day or so have, have in a way, revived the, the kerfuffle, which, which, which you know happened back in July as well, about what is the timing, when does he go, how long has he got, what are his plans. Um, where do we stand with all that, though? Has he kind of stirred up this ant's nest himself, in a way, by, by, to, by some of his statements? To a certain day? extent, because this did arise back in July and... There have been consistent calls from John Paul and others that and the Kenny set out a timetable for his departure and say, you know, I intend to go at some time, which is practically it's not it's impractical because once he does so, um he's he's politically dead really. If he says I'm leaving in, in December, we'll already move on to who talk about who's going to succeed him. I think the problem this week was that in trying to project his mojo with this, you know, I'm a leader in command, I'm, you know, going to drive the government forward, he used language and statements that perhaps were not what people in the parliamentary party wanted to hear. For example, indicating that he was going to stay on for two years into 2018. Everybody knows that's not going to happen. So perhaps he could have come up with some other formulation of words to say, I'm staying on, but, you know, I'm not going to stay on forever. The other issue was this kind of, I suppose, raising the spectre of another reshuffle next year, barely a year after the government has been formed. Again, he was asked the question, was he planning a reshuffle? An easier answer perhaps could have been, I should leave my ministers to get on with their work and they're concentrating yeah, the work so, moment. So why did he say that? I don't know. It's the honest answer. Again, we're going to look into Enda Kenny's mind. Perhaps he, the thing about Enda Kenny, I remember talking to someone very close to him in, in July when this came up. And there, they, I remember saying, what, what is he going to do? Because at this stage, the kind of speculation was reaching a crescendo. Was he going to outline the time to have his departure? And they said in, her, in their experience, the harder you push against them, his instinct is to push back. Mm. So perhaps that, that's what we're seeing this week, is that his response to people calling him in to go was actually not to kind of stick up two fingers in figurative sense and say, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Now, there is that's not to say... Nobody believes that he's going to stay on for another two years. Most people believe that at the latest he will be gone by middle of next year, although there are some in the parliamentary party who say we never believed he was going to relinquish the reins of power so easily and this proves it. Because this could become a real problem, couldn't it, John Paul, for Fine Gael? Well, I suppose it could in a sense, but, you know, Taoiseach a number of months ago said, even before the election, you know, he wasn't going to lead the party into the the second next election, um, which is the next one that's coming now. So I suppose he put the thing on the agenda himself in in that regard. Um, the problem politically at the moment is that it's obvious enough to everybody that we don't know when the next election is likely to be. Like, we became very used to having dolls that went full term or nearly full term. Um, I don't think there's anybody around this table who believes that this doll is going to go anywhere near a full term. Uh, and therefore, if there is to be a change in advance of an election. There's a feeling among a lot of people that it should be sooner rather than later in that sense. But, I mean, ultimately, we had a year of complete political instability because the election itself was inconclusive and it took months to form a government. And now we're facing into a budget. Like, we have a budget in less than a month, uh, which is remarkable when you consider how used to leaking and kite flying and everything else we've been over the years. There's been very little by way of that. Uh, And I really don't think there's going to anything 
happen one way or the other until until after that uh, until after that event. But given that, for people like yourself, and you're on the record as wanting you know some certainty on this, uh, you know, shortly after the budget, with with a view towards, would it be really fair in saying that your view is that there should be a change of uh, change of leader by before summer of next year or by spring of next year? It would. I mean, it's, it's no revelation. I mean, I was here. We we're just talking about it before we started. That um, I think it was the end of July, and I said at that stage, you know, because of the difficulties that were in forming a government and the fact that the government has had its moments of unsteadiness, to say the least, um, that uh, we had a budget to get through, and once that was over, then we should turn our thoughts to these discussions rather than in advance of the budget. And I mean, I still haven't changed my view. It's not. It's not news in that sense. My position. Um, How widely held is that view among your parliamentary colleagues? Difficult to judge. I mean, I would say that there are a number of people who have a similar view, but uh, you couldn't put a figure on it. I mean, politicians are cagey by nature in terms of uh, what they'll say to colleagues, uh, never mind to members of the media. Um, and what they say to one group is often what, different than what they say to another group, in private at least. So I would say that there are a number, but sure, I, I, don't, I just don't know. I suppose the question, Sarah, is, you know, what happens after the budget, you're into October, November, everybody's up there in Leinster House, There's the, the doll is sitting, into December, Christmas is coming, and people are saying, what's going to happen in the new year? And there's no sign of, no sign of movement at all. Uh, is there a point at which people start getting touchy? I think that point has already come. I mean, you know, Fiek's report today, there are his end as uh, public detractors are... are are few and far between at present, but privately, um, you know, there is, there is, it is well known or I suppose well thought that the Taoiseach shouldn't stay on much longer than the budget. And everybody just thinks, right, OK, we'll get this budget over the line and then we need to start having the conversation. And in a way, it would be foolish of Fine Gael not to have the conversation because the timing of the next general election is not at their mercy. It's at the mercy of their independent colleagues and even more so at the mercy of Fianna Fáil. Um, so it would be foolish of them not to start having a conversation about who will replace the Taoiseach because he's already indicated, as John Paul said, that he won't lead the party into the next general election election. The problem, I suppose, for the detractors is that they don't really have a sort of a big name, really, as of now, to their uh, to their cause, because a lot of the people who are calling for the Taoiseach to outline his uh, departure date are people who would be considered to have sore backsides because they didn't necessarily get a job um, from the Taoiseach or they, they would no, be known to have some um, long-standing history with the Taoiseach uh, in previous uh, occasions. So, John Paul got a job, though. Well, if you, I suppose if you ask John Paul whether he'd want a minister, a ministry, a minister of state or the chairman of the budgetary committee. <laughs> Perfectly happy with the job I have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, all it'll take is, is the Leo Varadkar or a member of cabinet or a minister of state. The, the, the sort of tradition in other um, political parties and indeed Irish political parties, FIAC, has been that, I think Vincent Brown got into trouble doing this metaphor, but I've got to do it myself anyway, that, you know, one or two veteran, senior, respected mm. kind of silverback gorillas of the party show up with the bottle of whiskey and the yeah. revolver and invite the leader to go into the adjoining room. That has been tradition. It happened, Bertie Hearn. Um, I think the most recent, he's the most recent uh, Experience of that when Michal Martin, Dermot O'Hearn, uh, and I think uh, it never happens. Uh, it has not happened in Finnegale though. Uh, it had happened. So it's been a bit more bloody in Finnegale. It's been a bit more bloody, but mm. I think Sarah's right that it's it, it's going to take. I don't think it will come to that because I still believe that Andy Kenny himself has a firm idea in his in his mind of when he will go, and that he will he will want to cause a surprise and go suddenly. 
uh, I think that he will probably catch everybody on the hop at some stage in the next six months and do some do something dramatic like that. But there will be some more rumblings post budget. Um, once, as John Paul said, once the budget is out of the way. Now, at the moment, it is confined publicly to that small core group of rebels, but the nature of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party now, it's quite small relative to what it was two years ago. And the rebels are slightly larger than they were there. So they're a larger proportion now of the Parliamentary Party than they were before. And they are growing, if you talk to people privately. But there is no big beast who is willing to step up and help out those people if they're to table a motion or do anything dramatic post-budget. I mean, ideally, it wouldn't it would necessarily be a leadership contender. No, it, it would just be somebody who had it would, stature it could and be, history it in the could party. It could be someone who has stature in the party, and it's at that stage that the leadership contenders, uh, Leo Varadkar, it's really Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney, let's be honest, Frances Fitzgerald is probably going to put her name in, but then she's not going to figure in the final shake-up. Either of them will have to make the calculation, do they do an Albert Reynolds, and go for it with intent the first time probably in the knowledge that they'll lose to get it the second time. That's the calculation I'd imagine both of those people are making. And if this, they have if this to happened. tread very carefully themselves because um, within Fine Gael, if you're seen to be, I suppose, too treacherous or if you move too quickly, a lot of the so-called middle ground... Will he who wields to, the dagger doesn't get the crown. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's well known that Leo Varadkar, I suppose, is front runner in this race and he has certainly done a lot over the summer, summer months to put himself as front runner, and his nearest rival, as Fiek said, Simon Coveney, hasn't been as proactive as Leo in terms of uh, trying to gain some support from his members. But all it'll take, I suppose, is Leo making a foolish move like supporting a motion uh, against the Taoiseach that could potentially, you know, cause his, cause his downfall or at least damage his chances chances well, of becoming there's, there's two ways of looking at that. He wouldn't be foolish enough to do it if he didn't think it was his long-term interest. I think the only way he would do that would be, like, let's bear in mind, the current leader of Fianna Fáil took a similar approach that he put down, he backed a heave against Brian Cowan that failed. But then, like, as that happened, literally weeks later, Cowan was gone. And because Michal Martin was the one who stood up at the time, he was the natural successor. So I think it's going to be a huge risk and anyone who is going to do that is going to have to weigh up whether... Very different dynamics, though. If you remember, Mihal Martin got into terrible trouble at the time of his stepping down because he was seen as being two-faced in terms yeah, but of the, what he was saying. But then that was all but that was after, swept but, but away But then because when everything became so catastrophic a couple of weeks mm. later, he was the one who stood up and he was the natural sure. leader in waiting. So that could be a dynamic here that if someone steps up and perhaps a large proportion of the parliamentary party see that he, that person was the one who stood up when they wanted him to stand up, could swing a lot of support what, their what, way. What about the argument, Sarah? And I, I find it interesting that nobody can see inside Lenda Kenny's brain at all, the most powerful, powerful man, man in the land. But what about the possibility that he went away for a few weeks, rediscovered his whatever it was with the assistance of whatever the hell it was, monkey glands in a clinic in Switzerland, and... Um, he came back and he looked at the situation and he looked at Brexit and he looked at the parlous state of the country and he looked at all these issues and he said, I'm the man who knows Angela Merkel. I've got those relationships across across the world. I've got the experience. I really should stay here because I'm the best person to do this job for the next two, two and a half years. If you ask me if I still want to be a politi- member of the political staff within the Irish Times in the next five years, I tell you, yeah, but Kevin O'Sullivan might have different ideas. I mean, the Taoiseach is obviously going to say that he wants to remain in his position because, of course, he, why wouldn't he? It's the most powerful position in the country. But he might. people also feel, don't they, especially when they're positions of power, that, that they're the best person to do the job going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose 
you know, with the Brexit, uh, with the decision of the British people to exit the European Union, it's made everything a little bit more difficult because you're right, he does have, you know, high level contacts within the European Union. He has made very stable uh, relationships um, which are needed as Ireland tries to get a good deal out of uh, the, the uh, out of Brexit. John Paul, but would end up be the best be the best leader for the country, whatever about the best leader for Fine Gael, the best leader for the country at this particular well, look time? Look, he has, uh, you know, proven relationships at a European level um, and obviously a very close relationship with the British government for years um, and he's been part of that. So, I mean, the, the, those are the, the kind of positives from an Endicani, um perspective. But I mean, going back to a little bit on the earlier discussion, we just don't have a history in Ireland of anybody leaving political office mm. without a fight. You know, I think Dev eventually, when the eyesight started to fail, decided to go to Arsene Uchtaron. Sean Lamas, who was the chap waiting for years, eventually got the job. But in fairness, he was probably the only one who left of his own volition. Well, Gareth Fitzgerald and Liam Cosgrave both left, albeit no, after no, election, election defeats. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. That, that, but I'm talking about Incumbents who and changing. I mean, it just hasn't. I mean, Bertie left when the writing was well and truly on the wall for a long time. So I mean, it just hasn't happened. Uh, Bar the mass. It is dangerous. This idea that only I am the person who can steer the ship of state through these troubled waters, because then it becomes almost about ego, and people see that it's this kind of, you know, the hahi esque. You know, I'll stay on till I'm eighty, and I'll stay at the ship. That's when people start to look askance at the person at the top and say. You're not infallible and you need to realise your own shortcomings and your own faults. Like, you know, you are not tied to the nation and the fate of you is not tied to the fate of the nation. And when that happens, that, be, that can tip quite quickly from being a valid viewpoint from, say, Andy Kenny's point of view to being extremely dangerous. Yeah, people like me, maybe six years ago, and others since and before, have consistently underestimated Andy Kenny. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm always struck... In the last few months, maybe before the summer round, the last time I was in here, uh, meeting a lot of political correspondents who were telling me, you know, there'll be a change by Christmas. Um, there's never been any evidence to me from him or from those around him that, that uh, you know, there would be such a swift change. Um, and he is somebody who has that kind of steel in the glove. You know, we get those kind of cringy moments of mojo and stuff like that, but uh, uh, he has that bit of... Cut, if you want to use a South Kenny kind of hurling phrase, uh, about him that few politicians have. But I suppose the question also arises: How good a leader? He, in, in some ways, he has been a very successful leader, the most successful leader of Fine Gael, the only one to be a Taoiseach for 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 two terms mm-hmm. in succession. But you I mean you had two reports that you're thinking this week um, on F- Fine Gael's failure at the at, at this year's general election. How much responsibility does Enda Kenny have for that? He failure? came out at the, before the discussion in his speech at the at the thinking and said he held his hands up and said, "I." fair amount of the responsibility is mine um, at start, which diffused, I suppose, part of the, the discussion. And it's, I suppose, he's right in a sense that it was designed as a very presidential type of campaign and that, as it happened, just didn't suit Fianna Fáil, were short on numbers. They have a man who's leader who, obviously, I'm politically <laughs> uh, on the opposite side of the fence and I would certainly not be his biggest fan, but he's quite a, a capable kind of debater. Uh, and you know the TV debates and media performances went quite well from an opposition point of view, and not as well from a government perspective. Hardly um, a surprise. I mean, we we knew that about yeah, Kenny as a yeah, debate. But I mean, uh, we designed years. a campaign that just didn't mm. suit his strengths, which which isn't just Andy Kenny's fault, by the way. That was the interesting thing. He was on, I think, the Pat Kenny show the other day, and he said, "I didn't enjoy the election. It wasn't the type of inge- election I enjoy." 
in know, fairness, he would be the kind of politician and that, that, who that was loves that, that statement absolutely yeah. rang tr- yeah. true because that yeah. that campaign was so j- stilted and like standing in a shed in Castlebar with a finnegale sign over your shoulder with a couple of bales of hay and a farmer beside you. There was not. There was not. There was no. Walking down the main street of a market town in Ireland, shaking hands. Well, That's I followed them during the general election on the on the Fine Gael bus, and we visited a lot of like warehouses where they had their press conferences. And only once did we actually do a walkabout, and that was in Trim in County Mead. And, and was that because of a fear of water protesters, or was it because of the weather? It was just or was because it, he was, was so overly managed by his mm, advisors. Yeah. They believe like Enda Kenny's strength lies when he talks to, I suppose, the ordinary person mm, on the street, yeah. whoever that person is. Um, but when we walked around Trim, I mean, the first problem with that was that his advisors were so sort of heavy-handed in a way with the people who wanted to come up and talk to the Taoiseach. Um, there was a very heavy media presence, I suppose, which meant that a lot of people came up to air their grievances to the Taoiseach. But he was rushed so much because he only had, I think, 20, 20 minutes to walk the street and trim. But when the people, when he actually spoke to people, he did quite well. But when he's on a national platform, when he's on a TV debate, he's robotic, and he just he doesn't endear himself to any, to, to the general mm. public. But when he's shaking their hand and having a conversation with them about yeah, their daily ro- lives, he's he's a lot stronger. And ironically, a politician. the politician who also did that during the election was Michal Martin. Like you turn on the news and you saw him the Kenny standing in the shed, and then you saw Michal Martin walking around streets and supermarkets and shopping like shopping centres, like shaking hands. It's the Tory thing as well that it was lifted from the Tory playbook the previous year, and there were people who raised concerns about it in the election, and they're told no, the Tories told us this will work. <laughs> the, I don't know who the, the, the Tory model is. Yeah. Really but, um, like Enda Kenny's strength has always been that kind of one-on-one or small group. Mm. Uh, he is. He has that kind of Bertie-esque ability in a campaign, whereas Mian Martin's strength would be the kind of TV and mm. debate and the formal kind of setting. And like Enda Kenny wouldn't didn't design. I, I'm not even fully sure myself who the ultimate designers of the election campaign. Well, that's you know, success always has you know has a hundred fathers and failures <laughs> and orphan. Um, did, did this orphan you know have any kind of any, anybody being blamed for it at, at this, or, uh, or was it not about blame? Is that it? It's not about blame. We just need to learn and move on. Is that what <laughs> uh, it was? It, it had the ring of that. I think yeah. um, the mojo was found again, and you know, at one bound we were off. Mm. That was the the kind of vibe. But also, there is a sense that the election was in February and that has been a long like it is a long time ago in time wise but it's it's an age in terms of what's happened politically yeah. since and there's also the feeling that you know we could have another election next February you know mm-hmm. or, or whenever uh, so do you Fine Gael has been the best party in Ireland for trawling over entrails of elections and things that have gone wrong in my time watching politics and I was a nerdy child I was watching politics when I was six or seven but I do think that you kind of just have to make sure that the next campaign whenever it comes so these isn't... kind of views that you know that it was over focused grouped uh, over reliant on models like the Tory one which 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 Fiek mentioned it not it, enough tu- not not enough in touch yeah. with the Fine Gael grassroots and their their feedback of what was happening yeah. on the ground is that the kind of the main uh, yeah but there was also a sense that came out quite clearly that the focus group research just wasn't used correctly you know that uh, yeah badly. that it wasn't the headlines were used but that when you actually drill down into the substance of it that you, there was a different story being told than what was in the headline the interesting line in that, that Marion Coy's speech at the thinking I think the, um, the her bullet notes were distributed but her speech was accidentally distributed as well and one of the lines she said that there was a, a selection bias in the way the research was interpreted so people were coming to this research 
with kind of, I suppose, predetermined positions and then use the research to basically confirm what they believe the public want rather than reading it correctly. And probably that's I'm how... I'm sorry that's to ask the rude question, but people, who are those people? Well, the advisor, the advisor at the top of Fine Gael. There was a right. very small group of people who were responsible for crafting that message. You're talking your Mark Kennelly's, your Andrew McDougall's, your Mark Mortel's, your Tom Curran's, your Kieran Conlon's, your Enda Kenny's as well, because he was on top of it. And actually, one of the interesting points that someone said to me to think in was that another reason that a swift leadership change is needed is perhaps this fear of uh, an early election. And if an early election is kind of comes, pops out of, of the political woodwork and, and Fine Gael are, are, have to fight it quite quickly, the same structures and teams are in place and they need a sweep across the party to prepare, not just at, in the leader's office, but at wide-ranging structures to prepare for an election. Do you agree with that, John Paul? Yes. To be perfectly, that's the short answer. Um, we just don't know when the election is going to happen and that's the kind of imponderable. Uh, but like we have to learn. Like Every party, and if you look back at successful Irish election campaigns, and again, thinking to my own school days and when Bertie was getting there first, every election campaign for Fianna Fáil, there seemed to be different new people that were involved in every different campaign. There were, there's a string of them and they've all gone on to do other things in, in other walks of life. But um, in Fine Gael, we probably haven't, and I mean, this is going to be awkward and unpopular for me from a Kilkenny point of view, but the man who is now the commissioner in Europe, uh, like him or loathe him, um, was a significant source of political knowledge from a Fine Gael point of view. His rather large gap has never been <laughs> filled in the party. Uh, Frank Flannery, mm. again, there's some in Fine Gael who are not fond of him, um, but he had an exceptional kind of political nose. That gap has never been filled. They were hard-nosed operators, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah they were, they were kind lacking. of bit of old school but also they were able to update the way that they did politics and uh, I'm just not sure I think that all the people who, who were mentioned by Fiac were there then but nobody's filled those two gaps and mm. they're huge political gaps The interesting thing actually we talked about this though we talk, we've just talked about how the failure of the Fine Gael campaign was just too stilted too managed it should have been more walking down the main street and meet people like is Leo Varadkar going to be strong in a campaign like that? Sarah? Yes, yes, me. Well, yes, absolutely. Yes, jump out, jump out, yeah. As Leo and our others point out, the vacancy hasn't arisen yet. I'm sure we'll know when it comes. It's kind of a suck it and see thing, really, isn't it, when it comes to yeah. elections and who's in charge of them? You know, I mean, going back over years, the, the common touch hasn't always been there with Fine Gael leaders in particular. It's, it's if you think, you know, I don't, I don't need to reel out the names, you yeah. know. Um, What's the, fav- the story about Garrett going to the Cork, Cork on the train and the red teddy bear? Someone handed him a red and white teddy bear and he thought it was from the Polish solidarity movement away in the air when someone said no it's actually for the Cork hurling team the fact yeah. is that Enda is probably the closest to a man of the people Sarah that's if the Fine Gael have ever come up with as a leader yeah probably I suppose the two contenders in the race to replace him Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney wouldn't necessarily be men of the people um, I think Simon Coveney has a bit of a statesman figure um, but probably wouldn't yeah, you're, you're very harsh they can mix it as much as the as the either of them. I spent I spent all of uh, here's a little bit of political gossip, all of Sunday, in the company of uh, Minister for Housing uh, Simon Coveney and his his two eldest daughters at the Camogie as it happens in Croke Park. But um, I mean he was there with his kids and enjoying an event. I mean I often have a drink or whatever with Leo Varadkar. We know we're the same age uh, and we're involved for as long uh, as each other in Fine Gael. I mean, I agree with you in the sense that they're probably not 
Enda has that kind of old school, almost Bertie-esque type of approach to politics. But I think um, for Adker and Cole, well, Enda has a great ability though to yes. to you know kiss your granny in the in the supermarket and mm. uh, you know pose for the selfies with the with the school children. Um, and the high fives, of course, don't forget that, or the slap on the back. Um, as I said, Coveney has an air of a statesman about him that we wouldn't necessarily endear itself to those kind of scenarios. And for Leo Varadkar, the, 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 the problem is, um, and it was reported by the independent TDs and the Fianna Fáil TDs during the government negotiations, is that Leo sometimes give, gives off an air of indifference. You know, he's uninterested at times and can get quite bored in certain scenarios and stuff and when you're Taoiseach or you're leader of a, of a party it's the boring stuff that that you have to do you know it's not all going always, trips to I'm the White House I was intrigued by that line from Fina- and others have said it as well about Leo Varadkar being standoffish like um, it was Leo Varadkar and Jim O'Callaghan who kind of hmm. initiated the discussions on Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael coming having some sort of an agreement in terms of forming a government um, and I always kind of get the I suppose the feeling that because the opinion polls have been done, the general public, if they were picking the next leader of Fine Gael, if they were picking the next Taoiseach, it would be Leo Varadkar if we had a direct election. So when your main opposition say, oh, he's aloof or he's yeah. this, that and the other. Like, do you, do well, you, do you isn't there a thing, without getting too philosophical at this time on a Wednesday morning, is that a politician is, has to be many things to, to, to many people and there's often a big difference between what the perceived persona of a politician as a yes. public figure is and what they're really like yeah. in a room. I mean, Bertie Hearn is a classic example of that from what I understand. The whole hail fellow, well met, good old Bertie is quite different from the, mm. the private Bertie mm. as, I, as, as I understand. Yes. So that's always the case. So when mm. we're looking at these two rising stars, who Felix mm. says they're two horses in this race, they have these public personas. Leo Varadkar sort of is seen to represent a kind of a more modern Ireland mm. in terms of his own background and the issue around his, his sexual mm. orientation. Simon Coveney, slightly more the the Clongo's boy, yeah. the the Cork Merchant Prince, you yeah, know, a little blood. bit more stiff, that kind yeah. of thing. But it is actually what John Paul says is probably is probably true to a certain extent. They they can mix it as well, just in a different style. Mm. Like when la- when last this issue flared up flared up in July, the doll was about to go into recess for the summer, and there was a an Oireachtas event where they tried to make journalists and politicians talk to each other. It's like <laughs> it's like a dance where everybody stands in the guards first in the room. But there's a couple of Finnegalers there, and the issue again was the main topic of conversation. And a couple of backbenchers said that if they had to have one politician in their town on the Saturday before general election it would be Leo because he has a star quality that attracts people. So maybe he doesn't have to go looking for people, mm. they come to him. And maybe that, at the moment, is his great, uh, I suppose, it's great asset, but that could fall away yeah. quite quickly remember, once you get into power. Yeah, I remember my own campaign launch for the election in 2011. Uh, we had about 500 people in a hall in Mulnavat and Varadkar was late arriving, I suppose he was campaigning for himself, but he gave a speech that people wanted to take the walls off the building, like it would really, really work them up into a lather. But yet when it was over, like Leo Varadkar is actually a shy enough person. Mm. And uh, I had to get one of my friends kind of to bring him around because he, he, he he's different than Enda Kenny in that sense. He, he is more reserved. And yet when he opens up, he's, he's great company. Like, But he has that kind of star. It's like Garrett. You, you said it yourself, you. I mean, in Fine Gael, with the exception of Kenny... And you could maybe argue Michael Noonan has uh, that kind of folksy or, you know, mm-hmm. the ability to interact with people. With the exception of those two, most of our leaders, like Mr. Cosgrave, who's still hale and hearty, and I met him at the All-Ireland recently, wasn't really... Uh, Wouldn't have been hugging, hugging babies in supermarkets no. really that uh, much. Garrett no. would have hugged 
teddy bears as 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 Felix said and probably didn't know what they were but people loved him for a different reason mm, yeah. you know and he attracted wearing John, so- wearing John Britton was the definition of stiff really wasn't yeah. he uh, yeah and yet he, everybody remembers for the laugh and the slam you know <laughs> the John Bruton thing like so we remember different things mm. I just remember like going back to my child what got me into politics was Anglo-Irish agreement uh, Peter Barry and Gareth Fitzgerald and I remember my own dad, who was never involved in politics, he was the chairman of the Hurland Club mm. for 30 years in my part of Kilkenny, he would have been your archetypal Fianna Fáil supporter if you were to, you know, pick one around the country. But he he, he would have died in a ditch for Gareth Fitzgerald. And to be fair, it was picked as a response to Bertie. So yeah. that era is maybe now passing. Ooh, when Ender's passing, that era is also yeah. passing. They were going back to That's that. That's a good point, yeah. Traditionally, Ender was picked as Fine Gael because Bertie was wiping all before him. They tried Bruton, they tried Noonan, it didn't work. So they had to basically have a Bertie clone. And now I suppose that Leo's greatest passing. asset that's been touched on by the two lads is, is that he is sort of celebrity-esque. I mean, none of my friends have any interest in politics, but they all know who Leo Varadkar is. They don't know what he does. They don't know what, what his position is, but they know who he is and well, they like the, him. given the way the modern politics is, that's half the battle won. Anyway, exactly. Listen, just, just, just to take a moment, just to say you are listening to the Politics Podcast in the Irish Times. Remember that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and we really do appreciate if you take a moment to rate or review the show because it helps other people to hear about it. Now, moving on, plenty of other stuff going on this week outside the uh, the hothouse environs of the Fine Gael thinking. This NAMA thing yeah, is bubbling NAMA, and growing and getting the, large all the time. The too. NAMA issue is before Cabinet today and I think the CNAG report on the Project Eagle uh, will be published after Cabinet. Um, it looks like there will be a commission inquiry at some stage, although the Taoiseach yesterday said he wasn't going to fully commit himself to that because it would cost millions of taxpayers' money and there may not be a rationale for doing it. I think we're looking at a a fairly laid set process now that it will be published today, all 700 words of it. It will go to the PAC. The PAC will call in NAMA for at least one hearing. I would imagine it would be more than one considering such a lengthy report. And then it will go on to whether we should have a commission investigation or not. But there are problems with that. Um, North-South uh, element of it being the obvious one with Arlene Foster out uh, already saying that she doesn't want to get involved in it. And the Taoiseach himself yesterday said that would present a huge difficulty and he cited, I think, an example, if you remember, when the allegations of sexual abuse in various Republican circles in the North surface, there was talk of a commission of investigation then, and that foundered on the idea of an North-South cooperation. So I think there's a bit of a way to go, yet the intent, I think, will be there to have a commission into this, but whether there are too many practical difficulties to overcome is an open question. Um, sorry, sir. No, I was going to say, I, I don't think he actually favours the establishment of a commission of investigation. I think what he favours is a, a you know doing what Fine Gael and the Taoiseach loves to do is hiring a retired judge to examine what's happened here. Um, but yesterday on Morning Ireland, he seemed to suggest that the PAC should conclude its work before anything should be decided. So NAMA are in before the PAC at the end of September, then Michael Noonan has been invited in, then the Department of Finance um, and other various people. And then he seems to indicate that at that point, will they decide whether or not they will have an inquiry? I mean, it, it, it's it's remarkable, I suppose, how quickly this has turned around. Uh, we were here in July uh, doing a podcast talking about this very issue and the resistance within Fine Gael at the highest level of government to have any form of inquiry was quite evident. They've resisted one for you know nearly two years. Mick Wallace has made allegation after allegation and they've resisted it up until now. The Controller and Auditor General report only looks at the value for money aspect of the sale of Project Eagle. There are question marks about you know criminal uh, 
Very serious allegations. Allegations have been made. Obviously, the Spotlight programme in, uh, on BBC uh, brought that brought those allegations to the fore. Fianna Fáil resisted it up until that Spotlight programme. They've fairly why the, why the resistance? They the from from government side, I suppose the resistance is there. I would imagine because it's like you know it's opening a lid to something that not ne- that they don't necessarily want to open the lid to. I mean, some people would say that NAMA, which is, you know, by, by, by some measure, the, the largest financial initiative ever undertaken by this state has been completely invisible to the citizens of this country. And some people in, in the opposition, I'm sure, would say that it's about time that that changed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think only 2015 or 2014 did they become subject to freedom of information requests. Um, up until that point, they had their work was, I suppose, very much shrouded in secrecy. And Mick Wallace has made a number of allegations, and so you know we don't know how accurate or true those those things are. But there were there are serious allegations being made, and uh, to open a lid on that is not is something no government really would want to do because then they would have been seen to presiding over it or, or at least not um, or turning a blind eye to it at the very least. Uh, but I think now that the you know, the controller and order general report, um, as Pat Leahy reported on Saturday, would suggest that millions of euro were lost in the sale of Project Eagle. I mean, it's some sort of something now the government can't really neglect for much longer. John Paul? Well, we should go back to the time that NAMA was established. And I mean, I heard some of the media comments yesterday, including my own constituency colleague, Mr McGuinness, the chairman of the Finance Committee, and he spoke about... Um, how the Minister for Finance didn't get directly involved enough at the time, you know, that the deal went through. I was part of, one of the people would have just taken part in the debates in the Shannad at the time when NAMA was formed. Uh, and Brian had designed a NAMA that was, he did everything in his power and he spoke at length to ensure that it was removed from politicians and that it would be something that wouldn't be subject to FOI. Yeah. He just took the view that um, it was potentially, I suppose, open to manipulation so much that politicians shouldn't be part of it. That was his view at the time. Um, I just think it's interesting that people, even on his own side now, are, com- are, are coming away from that point of view. Um, and it shows a kind of a lack of understanding of how NAMA was established when some politicians nowadays say that the minister didn't become involved enough at the time. I mean, that was the core thing about the way NAMA was established, that politicians weren't going to be involved in directing prices that were pay, or, or obtained for assets that were being sold, it was going to be removed from the political system. On the issue of whether there should be an inquiry, obviously it does boil down to relationships between North and South and whether the Northern Executive are prepared to agree and you'd have to say well, on the basis of this yeah, and other things that have happened in the last few months <laughs> that they don't mm-hmm. appear to be willing to, to, to be a part of that. So that's going to, like, we ha- there's a couple of investigations that we're going to have the public accounts hearings which I'd expect to be robust is that awful overused mm-hmm. political word, but you'd expect that they will be. Um, and after that, then there'll be a decision one way or other whether we can have a full investigation just from the re- point of view of the Republic and NAMA mm-hmm. probably can't have the, the type of investigation you'd like to have without Northern involvement. So it's a bit to go yet. But mm-hmm. I think in fairness, the Taoiseach in the last couple of days has indicated that inquiry is on his agenda at least now you know and he's open to it and the other side of things I suppose as well is that the po- politicians can't really determine whether something criminal has taken place that's really a, a job for Angarda Shikon and the PSNI I mean you know the, we, they, if they Taoiseach does decide to set up an inquiry the retired judge that he appoints um won't have, I suppose, the powers that are necessary to really get to the bottom of what has happened here because he can only, I suppose, go so far, really. A lot of the allegations that have been made um, 
are of criminal nature and they're, you know, that's not really a job for politicians. Indeed, but it's interesting. I mean, John Paul makes the point about by the way Brian Lennon set up NAMA, but the reality is, uh, and you can understand exactly the impulses that would have led him to try and, you know, separate right. it, you know, mm. hygienically from the from, from the political system. But the reality is that the purpose of NAMA is to recover for the people of this state as mu- as much as possible from the disaster mm. that befell us all in, two th- in 2008. And that was bound to come back to the political system at some point, wasn't it? Mm. Well, yeah, of course it was, but I mean, accountability. Uh, yeah, but I mean, if NAMA's task was to return a profit to the taxpayer, and it is, you know, it is going to do that by all accounts, um, then it's, I suppose... It depends how you look at that one, though, you know. <laughs> well, it seems <laughs> going to make a profit of a couple of billion for the taxpayer. You return a profit to the taxpayer after the taxpayer having suffered hmm. unbelievably yeah, yeah, yeah. High, high losses, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't mean that I suppose that it is... Uh, devoid or it should be devoid of accountability or transparency I mean it, it, the problem is is that the people who work for NAMA have this bundle of information um, and then when they leave NAMA they take that bundle of information with them and what's, what seems to be at the centre of Mick Wallace's allegations is that they take that information to NAMA's competitors um, and I, you can't really nec- people who they no. might be engaged people who they're doing business yeah. with yeah, yeah. But you can't necessarily prevent that. I mean, that's that's just a victim. Well, there, there, there's well, legislation in many in many, many countries. We now, so, yeah, we now in the lobbying yeah. Uh, yeah. sphere, we now have a cooling off period of a couple of years. I think so. Perhaps maybe that could be a way around. But that there is a cooling off period for when you leave NAM. It's, I think it's six months. Yeah, yeah but perhaps. Maybe but then you're than able that. to. But I mean, if six months is just enough to get your mojo back. Six months doesn't mean six months doesn't mean you can't pick up the phone to 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 somebody and distribute the information that mm. you've received when working for NAMA. I mean, that, that's that's well, essentially mm. what's... We'll just have to, have to see what. I want to ask you about John Holligan because he's, uh, you know, you're you're both representing constituencies in the southeast. so some of the issues which... I'm the only TD along with John Halligan who lives in Waterford City, but I live in the bit that's in County Kilkenny. Ah. So he's my closest There you neighbor. are, and <laughs> even, even more appropriate <laughs> to ask you about it because those issues obviously are close to your heart and your, your constituents' hearts as well. Do you think he's going to be a member of the government by... John Halligan doesn't know himself. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, and it, I think John kind of made huge commitments. I was listening back to some of them on local mm. media after the formation of the government about what was going to be delivered, and yet the print of what was agreed in the programme for government was a review. My, mm. I mentioned my father for the second time. He used to always say, be careful what you wish for. Uh, and in this case, what he wished for was a second cat lab but also that there would be a report to kind of back that up and the report has said something else but if you look at the was report Was he naive about that? Uh, I don't know naive I mean he is a man who's been in politics for years when I was a student in Waterford he was a workers party member a member of Waterford City Council for 20 something years so he's got huge political involvement but this is a completely new ball game for John Halligan because he's never been yeah in a government uh, position kind of before at local government mm-hmm. or national level so it's a completely different form of politics but you'd have to under like the, there's, there's all sorts of pressures I suppose in Waterford City Waterford City is the most economically depressed city mm-hmm. in the country um, that comes from largely from the fact that there was a traditionally huge manufacturing base in Waterford City which is largely gone and sadly for the most part, not coming yeah. back anytime soon. So uh, unemployment rates are higher in Waterford than anywhere else in the state. The, 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 and there's the all sorts of pressures on him. The problem also, Sarah was mentioning Leo Varadkar's role in the talks, and he was criticised a lot for like you know being disengaged and being on his phone. But I think one of the main bones of contention he had with the talks that he didn't believe that the second cat lab was warranted in the manner John Halligan was demanding, which mm-hmm. is what I wanted now. And he felt that 
it, it wasn't warranted and I suppose it was his uh, not idea but it was his input that led to this review that suddenly turned out the way we know it has but I remember someone in Fine Gael saying to me after the government deal was concluded that the problem will arise with John Halligan when John Halligan suddenly realised what he thinks he's received from us isn't actually what he's getting and that happened that he was convinced that this was a second cat lab on the way like I remember reading a piece in Waterford today last week where John Halligan was calling this a formality that this was going to happen and I just think perhaps a bit naive in how this was going to work. Maybe I'm being naive about this, but does, doesn't John Halligan have a day job as well? Isn't he a, a junior minister? And is that taking up? Does that not take up a lot of his time? Or well, he's, I, he's I, I heard the Taoiseach, I think, yesterday saying he should be concentrating more on he's, uh, he, youth unemployment and various issues. Yeah. That he has. He, he's a very topical junior minister at the moment because one of his responsibilities is cool transport. transport. And I can tell you from a rural TD's point of view, it is a nightmare at the moment and a nightmare to try and get responses. It's not just John Halligan's fault, by the way. There was consistent... In the times of recession, cutbacks in terms of funding and a change in the whole way that school transport was operated and it's leading to severe kind of problems uh, in parts of the country. So there'll be a lot of politicians across the board, all parties, who maybe would be saying that John should be concentrating on that. But that's an easy thing to say in a sense. This was the core Mm. issue of his involvement in government. So obviously for him, it goes to the heart of whether he's going to remain or not. Um, I just think that, you know, the report recommends an improved, it's far from what he wanted, but it is an improved service on what's there. Uh, And really with the prospect of having another review next year to see how that's working, um, you know, he should probably yeah. take it, that it also uh, and see what happens there. It also shows a bit of, again, naivety, naivety about how this would, would work. That Apparently, he's known about this for a couple of months. He was briefed on what this report contained in July. And we now know he's staying in government, but most politicians would take a couple of months, take the summer to prepare the ground for knowing what was coming by conditioning your constituents. Say, well, look, all, all we want is improved service, service at the hospital, even if we get a second cat lab or not. He didn't do that. And you know, I'm just I get the this impression... This was always sorry. going to happen. I mean, yeah. if the report came back and gave a second cat lab to John Halligan, he'd find another reason to, to leave government. I mean, nobody, you know, he said, he said there was a report yesterday in the Irish Times that he said that he's staying on as a member of government. But nobody believes that he's going to stay on as a member of government for much longer. There'll be something. There'll be some other issue, some other controversy. And I get the impression that prospect is viewed with kind of equanimity by by Fine Gael and and the independents and the independents. Is that right? I think within Fine Gael, they'd be quite happy and content for him to pack his bags and leave because they they, they see him, I suppose, as, as a live wire. Have they got as a, a replacement marked? I think they. Stephen Donnelly's departure from the Social Democrats came as a... Easy enough to get somebody. I'd say Noel Grealish would be the dream because Grealish would be easy to manage. He'll yeah. be steady, he'll vote with the government. There'll be no histrionics out of him. I think if the Independent Alliance had their way and there is a kind of bit of uh, confusion over if Halligan leaves, whose call is it to call in a replacement? But if the Independent Alliance, they would probably prefer Matty McGrath. It's not going to be a quiet time with him in government either. So... John, John, I need to ask you because I said at the outset you're the you're the chair of this new budget committee, but it's not going to be fully up and running in the way it's envisaged this year. Does it have a role at all this year? Well, the role, all of those you know OECD reports and even internal Irish reports that were carried out following the banking collapse and economic crisis all said that one of the key weaknesses was that there was not so much even oversight, but there wasn't a clear discussion before budgets about what the options were that were on the table. Now, you're right, this year, because uh, we don't have the independent budgetary office established yet, it's a much kind of truncated process that we're engaged in at present. Um, 
We're having hearings all during uh, September with a view to having a document ready to give to the Minister at the end of this month because the budget day is 11th of October. So this year is a shortened one, but in a sense we've had, yesterday we had the Financial Advisory Council, um, next week it's the Minister for Finance, Minister for Public Expenditure, and their leading officials and the Revenue Commissioners. We've had the Central Bank already. Um, so it has been a useful purpose. Um, Is it a sort of a dry run then for how these processes might work? Probably in fairness, because because we don't have that independent advice. Like there was a, uh, it, was, it was advertised as a team of consultants that are he- helping us to an extent, but um, the overall aim is to have an independent permanent budgetary office that will advise members of the Oireachtas on budgetary matters. This year really is a discussion of the options that are available to the Minister um, in advance of the budget. Ultimately it's up to the Executive and the Minister to put forward a budget and in this case this is real new politics because you know government isn't just a minority government it's such a small minority mm. government in a sense that uh, it does rely on other mm. discussions taking place which I don't think any of them have uh, happened. Interesting. The, the budget's going to be interesting in itself. That like it's going to be a budget of very few surprises, I'd imagine, because the program for government lays out what's going to be in the budget. Yeah. And I don't think this government, with its precarious nature, could could yeah. could survive any major surprises or wobbles. A dull budget. You heard it here first, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what any journalist wants to no. hear. But uh, yeah, look, look it's, it seems that way. And I think the, the biggest kind of shock to come from it is that there won't be that one promised one percent uh, reduction in universal social charge, and that's been flagged. Uh, via fiat from the Fine Gael Parliament or from Fine Gael uh, away day um, I think it's going to be extremely straightforward which uh, will come as a relief I suppose to Fine Gael uh, and the independents because that would mean that the government can continue for a little while longer anyway. Yeah, yeah it's a terrible disappointment to us that we'll do our best to squeeze some kind of fake excitement <laughs> out of it along the way over the next month or so thanks very much indeed to John Paul Field and Sarah Barden and Fia Kelly for joining us today and that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com and I always welcome your views, questions, and whatever else. Or you can find me on Twitter at hlinahan. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.